This episode of Rewind of the Living Dead is brought to you by NightChannels.com, the only place on the internet to get that darker side for your t-shirts and hoodies. These are amazing, unique t-shirts and hoodie designs for occult, music, literature, and films. Of course, they got loads of amazing horror t-shirts. There's this Texas Chainsaw one that you gotta have. They got Alien, but they also got these deep cuts like Begotten. You know Begotten, right? Because you're a hardcore horror fan like I am, or Guinea Pig. It's like that across the entire site for their music, for the anime, for other kind of media categories. Such cool designs that you're not gonna find anywhere else. Go on there, there's no way you're not gonna get a t-shirt or hoodie, I guarantee you. Tons of color options. The t-shirts have two fabric options, classic 90s style, which is Gildan, or that great modern combed cotton Bella option. And the best part about all this, these are one-of-a-kind designs, and all of it has really great competitive prices. In fact, if you go there right now, and you enter the code rewind at checkout, you get 13% off. That's right, 13% off at checkout if you let them know that Rewind of the Living Dead sent you. Uh, so when you're at the next convention or concert and someone asks, where'd you get that shirt? The only answer is at nightchannels.com. And be sure to visit them on Instagram at nightchannels as well. Um, that's N-I-G-H-T channels.com. Uh, and be sure at checkout to enter the code rewind to get your 13% off. Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. The 1980s served as the home to many great horror films, but it was also a decade defined by sequels, especially when any movie found success with theatergoers. The immense popularity of A Nightmare on Elm Street in 1984 led New Line Cinema to immediately shift gears to a sequel that would ultimately be released less than one year later. Unfortunately, original director Wes Craven declined to return despite being offered the gig because he found the script written by David Chaskin just to be too ridiculous and he wanted no part of the next film in the franchise. That's when Alone in the Dark director Jack Shoulder took over the project and he cast a relatively unknown young actor named Mark Patton in the lead role in a gender-bending swap from a final girl to a final boy. Upon its release, the film received mixed reviews from critics, with some praising the performances from the new cast, with others pointing out the overtly homoerotic themes that highlight nearly every major scene in the movie, with one publication eventually calling the, the sequel the gayest horror film ever. Set five years after the original film, Jesse Walsh and his family move into the infamous house where Nancy Thompson was once terrorized in her dreams, except this new teenager is actually fighting off Freddy Krueger from taking over his mind, body, and soul. Someone is coming back to Elm Street. He is not friendly. He is not patient. Kill for me. And he is not a welcome visitor. No! 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 But he has something terribly special for the new kid on the block. It started to happen again. Dad! I'm in trouble. You've had some scary dreams, okay? Help! Daddy can't help you now. There's something inside of me. Kruger is back on Elm Street. Get out of here, Lisa! Fight him! Watch out for him. He'll be in your neighborhood soon. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 2. You are all my 
children now. Freddy's Revenge. In the latest episode of Rewind with the Living Dead, we're going to do some push-ups and make sure the birdcage is locked as we review the 1985 sequel, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. And I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, as part of our ongoing Nightmare on Elm Street franchise review, we are now moving on to part two, Freddy's Revenge. Oh, Damon, this is exciting because I'm not terribly familiar with um, the entire franchise. Uh, People know I'm the Friday the 13th guy and Damon is our Freddy guy. So these movies feel new to me. Now, this one I have seen, um, but I really, again, oftentimes we talk about a movie that we've seen in our our past, but now we're watching it with a critical eye. Um, I I do remember very specifically certain parts of this movie, but watching it as a whole and then learning about its history, Freddy's Revenge to me is a very, very interesting study in what to do for your part two of a franchise. It's uh, it's actually the first Nightmare on Elm Street film I saw in theaters. Uh, I don't, I know I didn't see it upon its initial release in '85, and I have no idea uh, why it was still in theaters or how I still saw it in theaters because I was way too young at that point. But I know I saw this in theaters. I know I saw it in the theater. Uh, I know I was way too young to see it in the theater, but I know I saw this in the theater. So this was actually my first real experience with Nightmare on Elm Street. I know I had seen the first one, but I'm pretty sure I saw the first one after I saw the second one as I was a kid, uh, cause I remember my sister took me and I think she had seen it and she wanted to go. And I was like, Oh, I want to go. I want to go. And this was my first Nightmare on Elm Street experience. Um, this is one of the, probably the, one of the most controversial Nightmare on Elm Street films for a lot of reasons. I mentioned in the intro, of course, you know, the one publication, you know, called this the gayest horror film of all time. We're going to talk about those, you know, the homoerotic themes that kind of decorate the entire movie that, it actually took the writer, you know, years to finally come out and say, like, I wrote it that way. Like he denied it for years. He denied that he ever wrote in the, the, you know, the gay undertones of this movie. And then finally, like back in like 2011, I believe it was, he finally decided I'm going to drop the veneer and I'm going to, you know, openly admit that I put those themes in the movie. It was the height of, you know, it was the very beginning and the height of the AIDS epidemic, uh, you know, the, the idea of, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Like it was just a, a really, really kind of dark time, uh, to be gay in, in, in America. And so he wrote those kind of themes into the movie. Um, and that, you know, and, and this movie now, like, I, I don't know how much research you did on it, Patrick, but this film now plays like when they do like, you know, you know, big, you know, uh, like, like queer horror film, horror film festivals, things like this. Like, this is one of the like marquee films that shows yeah. because it is, so overtly with that, you know, that those themes in this movie. I think it's awesome. It was kind of fun to watch it. And I purposely did not watch Scream Queen, uh, which is the documentary based on Mark Patton's um, experience starring as as uh, as our lead in, in Freddy's Revenge. 
Um, I didn't watch that at first because I didn't I didn't want anything to to taint. I'd heard I'd heard the title the gayest horror movie ever made. But I was like, I don't I, I want to see for myself. I don't want anyone telling me what to what to point out or what to see in this movie. What I saw in this movie, first and foremost, was a genuinely fresh take on on Freddy at in part two, which is kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy that they that whether by accident or intention, Jack Shoulder and uh, Chaskin, uh, yeah, David Chaskin, you know, made something that stands out in in this franchise, which I think for a lot of Freddy fans was probably kind of scary at the time for different reasons. They were like, whoa, this is like way different. This one doesn't involve having nightmares. This doesn't involve Freddy being in your dream. I mean, kind of does, kind of doesn't. It's not to the effect that it is in the first film, not at all. It's a, it's almost like they immediately reinvented how this movie was going to work. So as somebody who was just trying to absorb the franchise with fre- really fresh eyes, I was kind of impressed. I was like, damn, like they're just they're just they're just charting their own path here. And the themes of uh, 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 the, the queer horror themes in this movie, I think, are very strong. And it's a shame that David Chaskin didn't want to own up to them because he was afraid he'd be judged because guys, you know, it's, it sucks that there are times in, um, in, in entertainment where, where Hollywood was downright cowardly and they didn't stick up for, uh, their great queer creators that were out there doing, doing great work for them. Um, so David Chaskin was like, Oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to own up to that. I'm not going to own up to that. Um, and he should have, because it was there was actually a good coming of age story that was happening in Freddy's Revenge. It, to me, this was uh, it, it actually was was filtered through a really decently created high school dramedy. Like it, it take out the Freddy aspect of it, and it it is just about this kid Jesse Walsh, who's sort of an outsider, who's so, sort of a loner, and he's trying to adjust to living in a new town. And, you know, and things go the way they go, as in many 80s high school movies are. And I was I was genuinely compelled by that for about the first half of this movie. Yeah. You know, like there's a lot like I haven't gone back and watched Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two in a long time. I will say of all the Nightmare on Elm Street films, you know, I've seen number one, number three and number four the most. I would say, you know, those are those are the ones I've seen the most. And I've seen New Nightmare yeah, probably the next, you know, the next tier. And Freddy versus Jason I've also seen quite a few times. Uh, I've seen Freddy's Dead very few times. I saw it in the theater with the 3D glasses, by the way. Uh, I saw mm, that in the nice. theater and I know I saw this in the theater, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. And I know I saw Dream Child uh, Part 5 in the theater. And I've seen Dream, like if I was tearing my Nightmare on Elm Street films, one and three I've seen the most, four next most, uh, probably New Nightmare and then part five. And then this one and Freddy's Dead are probably at the tail end of like, what? well, outside of the remake, which I literally have seen one time in the theater. And I'm not looking forward to talking about that one again. Um, <laughs> so I haven't seen this film nearly as much. I do remember the last time I watched it 15 years ago, maybe. I don't remember even when I last watched it. It's been a long time. Probably, well, no. Yeah, it's probably been that long. I bought the blue, I bought the DVD set. They had like this really cool box set DVD set that came out years ago. And I remember watching all the Nightmare on Elm Streets at that point. So that's probably like 15 years ago at least. Um, And then I hadn't seen it since then. And even then, I was just kind of watching it like to get through it, to be honest. Like I wasn't like super intently watching it, like, oh man, I can't wait to watch part two. I was like, let's get through this. 
so I can get to part three, which if I've said once, I've said a thousand times, probably one of my two favorite horror films of all time is Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors. Um, going back and rewatching it uh, 24 hours ago, because I want to have a fresh mind with this one. Couple things. Let me start off with the biggest strength of this movie, if you don't mind, Patrick. And, and we're going to talk Please. about, listen, we're going to talk a lot about the, the queer theme that you know, runs this movie because you have to, I mean, you can't avoid it, nor should you avoid it. And, it. and as you said, it's sad that the writer of this movie, David Chaskin tried to avoid that. And I get it. I understand the time in 1985, you couldn't do that or you, or, you know, you would, it was harder to do that. Of course. Now, you know, it's a lot easier to embrace those kind of stories and those kind of themes in a movie and, you know, damn you if you can't, but back then maybe it was harder. Um, and him denying it certainly didn't help matters much. You know, say, oh, no, I didn't right. write it that way. That certainly didn't help matters much. We'll get to that. The one thing I will say that I liked about it, and then it eventually turned into what I didn't like about it. What I liked about it was the originality of turning Freddy Krueger into a body horror film. Because that's really mm -hmm. what this It's a possession film, but it's a body horror film. It transforms from a guy who's haunting you in your nightmares to a guy who's literally trying to project himself into another person. So he can actually live in the, in the ethereal world in the, in the real world where he can kill people. Um, that's a unique take. And I kind of appreciated the yeah. body horror of it, even though I'm not a massive body horror guy. I do like body horror. We talked about from beyond and some other, you know, body horror films we've enjoyed. This was a body horror film in in so many ways, possession body horror film. And I really like the creativity of that. The downside of that, and I, again, I applaud the, 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 the bold storytelling, the direction to go in this film. What I didn't like about that, though, is that outside of a couple of scenes of the opening, you have the scene in the bus, which is, of course, probably one of the most famous scenes in this movie, the bus ride to hell, so to speak. And then the secondary interaction with Freddie where, you know, where Jesse is first meeting Freddie and Freddie's like, you know, I want you to kill for me you know, I want you to use me, whatever. Yeah. Outside of that, you know, 90% of the Freddy interactions take place out of the dream world. And that kind of ruins it for me because Freddy is a dream demon. Now, I'm not going to go into a full rewrite of the living dead on fixing this film. There's a lot I would have to fix. But if they would have just had it stayed where Freddy was just in the dream and he was just progressively working harder and harder to take over Jesse's body. And then eventually he did it towards the latter part of the movie. I think it, this actually could have been a really, really strong movie. They just spent way too much time with Freddy out of the dream world where it's kind of like, he's not really a dream demon in this movie. Like he's not, he doesn't really do anything in dream. He kills no one in his dreams in this movie. It was one of those things that started to stick out at me in the movie. The first and foremost note for me was, Hey, like Freddie's kind of scary this time. And I, I mentioned that when we talked about uh, the, the original nightmare on Elm street, I was like, you know, once he's out of the shadows, he's not that scary. Like, like, you know, that there was a couple of cool ways he got in through your dreams and all that stuff. But he, but once he was like there, there, I wasn't scared of Freddie. This movie, I was, especially in the early interactions with him and Jesse, where, you know, like, like they're really close and, and Freddie's in the dark and he's talking and finally you're getting Robert England's. Uh, voice, you know, and I, I say artistic voice is what I mean, not literal voice. His voice is already part of it, but his artistic voice in the character and the character did seem scary and dangerous. And in those moments, I was like, that is terrifying. And I was putting myself in Jesse's shoes. I'm like, I'm a high school kid. I'm 
new to this town. I'm scared. I had this horrific dream where I was hijacked on a bus and taken to hell. And now this guy, you know, this, 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 this grotesque demon with razor hands wants to take over my body. And in those moments, it was like, wow, this is like genuinely creepy. Then it does start to progress and you realize, oh, we're not getting to the dream stuff. That's yeah. not going to happen in this movie. And you're like, huh, okay. But they, to me, they replace it like with just like what you said, which is body horror, which what better way to tie body horror in than a coming of age movie? When when Jesse is is becoming, you know, for lack of a better term, he's 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 at that age in high school where he's becoming a sexual being. So he's he's there are parts of uh, his uh, the parallels, uh, the idea of a teen like trying to wrestle with their their feelings, their internal feelings about their body and this demon that's trying to take you over. It's kind of genius, like accidentally genius. And then, excuse me, on top of that, I thought that this movie revisits the history of the original movie very cleverly. Because Jesse moves in to Nancy's house. Nancy's gone. We don't know. You know, we 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 have some ideas of how, what happened to her. They find her journal and they read it. And I and I'm like, okay, that's kind of interesting. They're actually creating the mythology here in this movie. The mythology of Freddy and what he's capable of is now mythology to these kids. It's legend to these kids. And I liked that. And I dug that. And I was like. Am I the only one picking up on that, Damon? You know, you're our Friday, you're our Freddy guy. Did did that resonate with you at all in either previous screenings or in this screening, where you're just like, you know, they really are treating the mythology of Freddy very strongly in this movie. I'm of two minds with that, and and I say that because I think that when you watch, and I know I'm comparing it because you know, and again, I I know it's an unfair comparison. But when you look at Nightmare on Elm Street 3, the way that that film carries on the mythology and re and re and brings back Nancy as a, a supporting character, she's not the lead character right away. You know, we have a different character played by Patricia Arquette, who is our lead character who lives in, you know, who, who knows this house, who knows the, the Freddy house, and she's haunted by it. And then eventually we get to meet Nancy Thompson, who returns in kind of an older role. You know, she's, you know, in college or out of college, and now she's working towards becoming a doctor, whatever she's doing in that movie. Um, and she shows up and she's kind of like the secondary supporting character. You're like, oh, Nancy has returned. To me, that was a much stronger sequel, but I also understand that you need a little you needed a little bit of space to get there. You know what I mean? You couldn't yeah. do that a year later because Nancy would be her first year of college, and then you're just carrying on the story. It would be very much like Scream, which I have no problem with that. I have no problem that you're you know, covering, you know, you would go from Sydney Prescott in her senior year of high school into her freshman year of college. I have zero problem with that. That's how that story carried on. And they did a great job doing it in the screen films. So if you bring back Nancy in this film, it's a much different film because it's a year later. I didn't quite understand why they tried to push it forward five years. That was one of the like choices that I was like, that kind of didn't make sense to me. Like why not make it a year later, five years later and everything still looks very eighties. That didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Like <laughs> it's five years later, which would have mean this film took place like 1980, 89, 90. Uh, and the kids do not dress like they did in 89, 90. Um, but that's a, that's a minor detail. I'll be honest. When I originally watched this and saw this and I went back and watched it years ago, the biggest reason, one of the biggest reasons I didn't like it is because I didn't feel like it properly carried on the story, but also I was comparing it to part three, which carries it on incredibly well. And we'll get into part three, you know, in our, in our, in our, in our, in our next Nightmare on Elm Street episode 
then you'll hear me goo and ga and you know fawn over you know the way that they build the mythology and, and really carry on that story of Nancy Thompson as the original final girl. Rewatching this, it didn't bother me nearly as much the way they set it up, and they used Nancy's uh, journal, her diary, as kind of like a guide on how to battle Freddy. And and when I rewatched mm-hmm. it, I was kind of like, you know what, this isn't bad. My only complaint, my only complaint, is that. Because they do it five years in the future, when Grady, his friend, mentions to him that you're living in a house where a girl went crazy and her mother committed suicide, and they mention that in the film, okay, but the fact that they had to do it five years later, it's like everybody else in town has suddenly forgotten about this, which is kind of weird to me. Right. Like If there was like a, a kid literally got turned into a geyser of blood and the girl across <laughs> the street went nuts and her mother killed herself, that's going to become like, you know, this is like Springwood, Ohio. I'm in Ohio. That would be that would you do talk about we're still talking about things that happened back in the eighties now, okay, in Ohio. <laughs> to think that people would just be like forgetting about it or like they didn't know about it or they don't care about it would be kind of weird. But anyways, I didn't mind it nearly as much rewatching it now. At the time I was like, How can you not you, know, you barely mention Nancy? You're not even like carrying on her story, you're kind of leaving it this like open ended, kind of not explaining what happened to her story, and then you're bringing in all these new characters. Rewatching it, I kind of appreciated it more because they used Nancy as the guide, as the as the way to understand who Freddie was. You know who who Freddie you know, was as a villain, how to tackle Freddie, how to deal with Freddie. All that actually made me enjoy it a lot more. The, again, my only real issue with that part of the story is the five year time jump. That just didn't make sense. They didn't really need to do that, in my opinion. Well, you, you know what what I appreciated from it was. I got a legend that I've I've seen some backstory on. Like basically the legend now is the legend of Nancy Thompson. That's what Freddy's revenge is about. Uh, or that or that's, you know, at least understanding why Freddy is attacking us now. It, it was so clear now. In the original, you get a couple of lines of dialogue that explain his history. And I know everybody loves that. I know that I know that the Freddy fanatics, they love that history, but it took us, you know, seeing that that Freddy anthology TV show to actually get his proper origin, right? So to me, as an outsider to this franchise, the first film is an origin story, and then this film uses that original film as legend to carry on the story, and most importantly, carry on why it's going to be scary. When you're reading this book and you and you hear rumblings of what this house was all about and what happened to the boyfriend across the street and all that stuff— there's 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 something in the air for these kids to be afraid of, but no one. But of course, no one believes them. No one even no one not even uh, Lisa, his his pseudo girlfriend, even believes him for for the longest time. They just think Jesse's a troubled kid. But that legend is pulled in, and I have that frame of reference. I have a whole movie where I was like, nope, I know exactly what Freddy's capable of, and it's nasty and it's scary. And in this movie, Freddy is nasty and scary in a whole different way. Um, now, now it's, that's not to say that I think this movie's perfect because it loses momentum and its greatest weakness is that the momentum at some point just absolutely falls off. Um, it doesn't feel like it's building towards anything. I think that's actually, to me, the biggest weakness of this movie is not the lore or how, how it handles, uh, the Nancy Thompson story or anything like that. It's that it just flat out loses momentum at some point. You don't. I don't feel like. Oh man, there's this moment where 
Freddie is going to collide with Jesse's and we're going to lose Jesse forever. Like the urgency of that is just doesn't exist in this movie. And it's, and it's kind of leading towards that party scene, the very famous pool party massacre that Freddie comes, comes alive and, or, you know, comes into this plane of existence and slaughters a bunch of people at the party. And I was like, well, like, is that, is that what we were really building towards? Cause it never feels like even once Freddie kind of manifests himself, it doesn't feel like we're going to lose Jesse, even though he like explodes from inside Jesse and all that stuff. Like you get the feeling he's coming back. There's no, there's no, like in the lost boys, the engine that's pulling you towards the end is, can we save Michael before it's too late? Yeah. That is not the case in this movie. It just sort of, it sort of plays the background after a while and in a, in a really weird way. I mean, this, this movie's, there's a lot of potential in it, but story-wise, it's kind of a mess. Well, this is a film, in my opinion, that's a story of two halves. You know, the first half of the movie, in my opinion, is pretty strong when they really set it up that yeah. Freddy, Freddy's mission in this movie is is pretty clear. He's not just going to kill kids. He wants to cross over. He wants to possess yeah. this kid, Jesse Walsh, and, be, and cross over into the real world so he can continue the killing streak he started all the years earlier. That's pretty clear. And when they do that... It's really well done. The way he haunts Jesse's dreams and like basically says, I'm you're gonna kill for me. I'm gonna take over your body and you're gonna kill for me. The first half of this film is pretty strong. It's the back half that loses it completely because yeah. then they lose as you mentioned, it loses momentum, they lose track of where they're going. The dream scenes and the real scenes get really, really weird. Uh, you know, and, and we might as well get into it. We talk about like the, you know, the the underlying, you know, homoeroticism in this movie. I mean Listen, dude, like the scene where Jesse goes into the S&M club where he meets his coach in there is got to be mm -hmm. one of the three most bizarre scenes <laughs> in horror movie history. It comes from out of nowhere and doesn't yeah. make a lick of sense why it's there. None does not make any sense whatsoever. Uh, yeah, it, I don't I, I was trying to find a reason for why it made sense. I was like, is Jesse just looking for someone to listen to him because no one will listen to him? And then he he, he chooses this club. I couldn't quite understand why. And then he bumps into his his coach, who's, uh, you know, a bully in and of, in his in his own right. Um, and I was like, how does how's Jesse getting in trouble with his coach for being at the same kink bar? Like the coach then like drags him out of there and they go to the locker rooms and he's punishing him at the locker rooms. And you're like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. It just got wacky. Yeah. It just it got, got really weird. And, and it's not, and it's not a knock on the, I don't even think the, the, the homoerotic uh, tendencies were strong enough in those moments. Like, because story-wise it felt way too random. Like I don't, I guarantee you David Chaskin couldn't tell you with great clarity why those scenes matter. Yeah, they don't. They don't matter. That's the problem. I don't like think they're they do, just yeah. they're just in there and like it doesn't propel the story forward and it doesn't do anything except set you up for that weird scene in the gym where the coach gets stripped naked and slapped yeah. with towels. Like it's just a really weird bizarre like again, that's you know where you talk about like the under the undertone or again, I don't really know if it's an undertone. It's overtly there. Like there's no undertone yeah. to it. Like it's right in your face. But like when they strip the coach down, it's just like, why? Like what, what, what is this? I, I, again, it's almost like, you know, he, he, again, when he finally admitted years later that he wrote this film with like, you know, uh, uh, you know, with, with the gay moments and the gay themes throughout this movie, when he finally admitted that again, I am completely okay with all that. And, and I think anyone, you know, in their right minds who's watched great cinema would appreciate that. Honestly, I wish he would have yeah. done it years earlier. The problem is I feel like with scenes like that, he's stuck in those scenes that were 
overtly gay, I don't know a better way to say it, uh, without actually using it to make a better story, if that makes sense. Like if you would, you no, can do total sense. the two things can come together. You know what I mean? Like you can use that theme and use it to propel the story forward. Absolutely. You can. And I have zero. The problem is, is like the scene where Jesse goes into the, the kink bar and just randomly runs into his coach. And then his coach takes him back to the school where he gets whipped with towels in a shower while he's naked it just doesn't make any sense and it does nothing for the story. Like there's no point to that story. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not doing a whole rewrite of living dead, but if like the idea is, is that the coach is closeted, like he's like, you know, he's punishing the, the boys because he doesn't want to be out and proud. You know what I mean? And you want to use that right. as like him punishing Jesse for being in the same place that he is. And that's why he's punishing him. And it's actually more clearly stated that that's what it's about. And then Jesse gets his revenge on him for punishing him. Fine. Because Jesse's being taken over by Freddie. He gets his revenge on the coach. Great. That's a little more clear. This one is just, it's so weird. Like, it's just so weird. He, he like sweating and an open shirt walks into this bar and orders a beer. And then his coach shows up and takes him back to the high school. Like, it's just so weird. Like when I rewatched weird. it the other night, I was like, is he dreaming? Is he not dreaming? Like, I, I don't know <laughs> what I'm watching right here. Yeah. 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 And at that point I was still looking for, Oh, are we like traveling into dreams and not into dreams? Cause in the first one, it's great the way they kind of use sleight of hand to make you not, know when you're in a dream right i didn't realize at some point in this movie they abandoned the idea that we're going to even be in dreams so these these moments are confusing and i think it all boils down to now as far as i know david chaskin is not gay i i'm not sure to be honest i'm not really I, I, sure ba based on watching scream queen it did not appear that way so if if i'm incorrect on this piece please feel free to email us and let me know but i'm pretty sure david chaskin is not gay but he was writing a gay story that is where you get into trouble because you're not from this community. You don't quite understand it. So you just put something in for effect and that's what happens. It just feels flat. It just feels like it doesn't have anything behind it. It is disingenuine. And so the movie just sort of meanders through these things without making them relevant. You, you explained right, right there. There are, there are ways to make these moments relevant and to make it, um, you know, a, a, an actually really good story about, about gay themes. But I think because David Chaskin, as far as I know, is not gay, he didn't, he didn't have an ability to, he didn't have something to pull from emotionally. Yeah. So it, it just, it just feels empty. And then that feels kind of cheap towards gay people. I, if I was a gay man, I'd been like, you know, that's kind of cheap, dude. Like you're using my, you know, my lens to just make shit up in your movie. And there's actually a really great way to kind of make it all unfold. And so it, it, it's empty. It's, it, it's, it's ultimately kind of empty. I understand why the gay community embraced it. Cause it's like, Hey, look, we have a movie with gay overtones. That's like unabashedly gay. So they do celebrate it ultimately. But imagine if David Chaskin was like, I'm out, I'm proud, and I'm proud of uh, what I put into this movie. I think it would have shown if he could have done that. Now, of course, the times were different, unfortunately, and he couldn't embrace himself or it could embrace the ideas he wanted to embrace. Even if he wasn't gay, he couldn't embrace the ideas. So because he couldn't embrace them, you get you get left with those those moments that I think a lot of people giggle at. Um but the truth be told is like those moments could have been so much more. The potential 
for this story could have been so much more if you truly embraced the gay themes. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, again, I think that's where this story really loses something, where this film really loses something in the second half, because it just gets really weird and doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And and the story just falls apart. Like the party scene is, I mean, unbelievably bad. I mean, it's yeah, just bad. unbelievably bad. It's so bad. Um, and, you know, Wes Craven has talked about this, you know, before he passed away, Wes Craven talked about this film and, 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 and he talked about like, Freddie being in the real world and he's like fighting these kids at a pool party. And he's like, Freddie is supposed to be like a terrorizing, like, you know, shadowy demon. When you bring him out in the light and you realize like the teenagers are like a foot taller than him because Robert England is not like an imposing, you know, he's not a cane hotter. He's not an imposing right. figure. Uh, he loses some of that scare. Like he loses his frightening factor when you're seeing him standing there next to like a six foot tall, you know, high school football player and Freddie's like five foot seven and you know, doesn't look all that scary anymore. Uh, you take away that, that, that terrifying factor, what Freddie was all about. So like the second half of the film just loses momentum and loses everything that was built up in the first half, because the first half rewatching it, I was like, you know what? This isn't a bad story. And I, again, I appreciated the whole body horror possession element. It was a nice twist on the Freddie mythology that was different than most of the other films and they redid it because the original script for this film, the original pitch for this film was by, uh, I believe it was a female writer and she had pitched it as almost like a Rosemary's baby where basically Lisa was going to be pregnant with a baby and Freddie was going to try to possess her baby. Now they didn't do it. And they actually ended up using that story in part five, the dream child with Alice's baby being possessed by Freddie. And so that ends up being, the whole story of, of part five. And they kind of redo this again in that one, which uh, sadly that one's not much better, but in this one, they do it with like the, 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 the Jesse element. They make him be the possessed, the possessed boy, but Wes Craven, you know, when, when he talked about it and talked about the issues with that, I get it. I understand the issues he had with it. And I understand how they made Freddie less scary in this movie at points. And I know you talked about Freddie being scary. He was at moments, but then they also kind of ruined that with the pool party and things uh, like that. But once the pool party happens, but yeah, then it's the second, no longer scary. The, the second half of the film just falls apart because the first part is a really solid setup for a possession body horror film. But then it just loses all that momentum by that weird scene with the coach, by the weird scene in the gym, uh, you know, it, the weird sleepover with Grady where like he becomes, it's just, again, it just, the, the story goes away and they keep packing in scenes, if that makes sense. Like they're just packing in moments and there's no story progression. Yeah. Because, because what we should be progressing towards is losing Jesse. We don't want to lose him. And actually like, I, I will say like, ultimately, like I felt bad for Jesse, the character, because he was a troubled kid and he, and, and it was like, if, if they would have embraced the storyline of like, if Freddie gets his way, we're going to lose this kid. Then we're building towards something. We're building towards the end. Like, it's almost like once the possession happens, like, it doesn't even matter that he got possessed. Like, what, like, what did, like, what friend cares or what, or what moment in, in Jesse's life is he going to miss out on or something like that? Like, it, it wasn't tied tied together properly so when when the switch happens it's like it you know and then of course we get back down into the boiler room and now um now lisa's kind of going after freddie to destroy him to bring back uh, um jesse like you don't feel the weight of it you don't feel the urgency you don't feel that there are any stakes involved and so it just like at the end i was kind of bored i was like okay he's he's losing via the power of love pretty sure <laughs> and then he just sort of withers away and jesse comes back and you're like uh, 
okay? But, but it was just, that was a story problem. And it was a story problem that was even a problem in the beginning of the movie. As much as I liked the first half of the movie, we weren't getting enough of the, of that trajectory of that, of that, um, of that goal and obstacle. Like, okay, the goal is to save Jesse and the obstacle is Freddie. Like that never felt urgent at all. Well, they just, they just lost track of that. You know, the first half when you really see it, it's, it's overtly there and it works really well because you see the gradual, you know, transformation from Jesse into Freddie. And then about halfway through, it just stops and now he's Freddy, kinda. And then like he's he's kinda. he's more Freddy. Like I think if they yeah. would have just if they would have just kept the story strong, where it's like you know we realize early on that Freddy's trying to possess this kid, he's trying to take over his body so he can kind of be reborn into this new world as as a killer again, and and be in the real world instead of be trapped in the dream world. Okay, great. And then each passing moment is more of that transition of of Jesse turning into Freddy. And if you keep things in the dream world where the, you know, it's almost like the Freddy versus Jason story where he needs people to fear him. He needs to gain that power from the dreams, from the souls that make him stronger. If we just keep it in the dream world for three quarters of the movie while he is slowly transforming Jesse into him, like he is slowly taking over his body. He is slowly taking over his mind and soul. And then by that three quarters point where the, where the party takes place, except please God, a better version of that when he finally gets the full transformation, because then you have that. And then you have the scene with Grady where he actually does transform. It's like two times. It's just really bizarre. And, and, and if they would have just kept that to one scene where we really see him fully lose it, where he is no longer Jesse, he is only Freddie. And then at that moment, Lisa has to find a way to save him. Now, I think, again, a stronger version of this film, and I'm not trying to do a full rewrite of the living dead, although I guess I am. You have. A stronger version of this film would have been he fully transforms into Freddy. Lisa fights desperately to save him. But then at the end, she realizes she can only do one of two things. She can either stop Freddy or allow him to continue to take over Jesse's body. And she kills him. And in such, she kills Jesse. I think that would have been a stronger ending to this film is her killing Freddy. But by extension, she kills Jesse. And Jesse's like, thank-. it's almost like, um, uh, I know this is such a weird pull. The Wolfman in, uh, in, in in Monster Squad, where he gets shot and he tells him, he's like, thank you, because he's cursed. He's cursed with this 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 affliction of becoming a, a, a werewolf. Yeah. Jesse like tells her to kill him, you know, kill me, kill me, Lisa. And, and he, she does it, and then she's all crying and sad. She puts him down. Freddie goes away, and Jesse dies, and she says, thank you. Like, I couldn't go on with this creature inside me. And so, you know, I think that would have been a more satisfying ending. But her, like... Fight him, Jesse. Fight him, Jesse. And then he just like morphs back into Jesse. Like it's just weird and doesn't really go anywhere and doesn't actually do anything for the story. I'm not going to like say, uh, you know, Jason dies better in his movies. But as of right now, Jason dies better in his <laughs> movies. Because for, for, for the two that I have in my head right now, and I have seen three and four more than probably these ones, like there's no memorable, you know, Freddy deaths, but the the two deaths in, or the two ways to kill him in the first two movies are highly underwhelming. If yeah. I'm going to be a critic, the the first one I like the first one, but then they had the weird ending in the first one, which is kind of like was it real, was it not? Yeah. And I have no problem with that. The number you know, Nightmare on Elm Street one is a classic, and and uh, you know if you ever hear Wes Craven talked about it. 
Yeah, he only intended on making one. He didn't intend on making like you know, eighteen As sequels. was the way. In so the 80s. yeah, so you know when they had that that ending where you realize that Freddy's not actually dead and the kids get taken away in the car and they're still in the dream world, that's kind of terrifying. And you realize, oh my God, Freddy's not dead. They never intended on Nancy coming back and you know, everything else. So like that was kind of a weird way. They didn't really carry it on as a sequel. So I liked the ending of that one with Freddy just being like taking away his power by not allowing him to haunt you because you're just like, I'm not going to believe in you. You know, you're, 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 I don't believe in you anymore. So I take away your power. I'm fine with that one. This one is much weirder. Uh, and I think part three personally has the best personally, the pet, the best Freddy ending uh, in terms of like how they actually kill him, which we'll get into great detail about that when we do that podcast. But yeah, it's a really, cause it, it's not, it's not, it's not really stated. Like I love you. So come back and he comes back and <laughs> Freddy just goes away. Like, it's just really weird. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm hoping that there's there's a Freddy movie where I go. This is the best way Freddy ever died. Because so far we're we're batting O for two. Well, you will you will praise part three. I promise. Let's you. see. I know part three pretty well. We're we're not talking about part three tonight. Yeah, I have so, thoughts. Yeah, let's uh, let's get into the categories because we got a lot of categories to talk about with this movie. So let's kick things off as we do each and every week on the show with best performance. Um, a lot of performances in this movie. A few over the top, a few others. Uh, a lot of performances in this movie. <laughs> a lot of performances. Uh, best performance. Patrick, who is your best performance in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge? I have to give it to our star, the legend himself, uh, Mr. Mark Patton, who plays Jesse Walsh. It is such a different thing. And and again, that was an intention that I wish David Chaskin embraced all along, which was, we're doing a final boy. It's not going to be a final girl. That is revolutionary for the slasher genre, 100%. Even if they didn't intend to have gay undertones of any sort, the fact that it was a final boy was very interesting and very different. And the way that Mark Patton portrayed Jesse, I loved. I think he was definitely channeling the fact that he had to be closeted to the world. He was open to his to his small circle of friends and family, but he was he was closeted to the world. So I think he channeled some of that. And and just the troubled kid, take take away sexuality for a moment, just the troubled kid, to me, I, I there were times where I genuinely felt bad for him. Because again, I think there's a part of this movie that is just a great high school coming of age drama. And Mark brings something to that aspect of it all that I really appreciated. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say you're alone in that because I'm not a huge fan of Mark Patton's performance in this movie. <laughs> um, not to knock what he does. I just think that, you know, in not, terms I, of, not all over the movie, but the parts that are, I think are standout is what I'm saying. The parts and, where and, he does well, I would agree. The parts where he doesn't do well is where it kind of takes away from me personally. Like he just has so many over the top performances. And I know a lot has been made and a lot has been made about his scream, like his very like right. guttural scream. He does in this movie and listen, um, screaming is an art form. Let's be clear about that. Like screaming is an art form in horror films. Uh, his scream is just really off putting. I don't know a better way to say it. <laughs> and the way he kind of shrieks when he screams every time he did it, when I watched, it, I was like mute, I can't take it. Stop. That's enough. Um, but the actual acting parts away from those, like, you know, being terrified parts, he wasn't, he wasn't bad. It was, the, it was when he got scared. I was like, oh, please stop. Just slow down. Um, but I could agree with that. Cause it was a little like, um, it was kind of like almost like old Hollywood style screaming. Yeah. It, yeah, it a little didn't bit, fit the tone quite yeah, a little bit over the top. Uh, yeah. my, my best performance, you know, I, I go in the other direction of the other main lead in this when I go with Kim Myers as Lisa, 
I thought she did a really strong job of being the other part to the relationship in this one. I thought her acting was solid. Of course, Kim Myers went on to do a lot of other things. She's still acting currently today. And of course, I know her best as the infamous Pam uh, from the episode of Seinfeld, where uh, Jerry is dating a girl who works at the bookstore and Kramer ends up having a crush on her and having uh, having uh, Newman read lines of poetry to her uh, in the, in the bookstore, in the, in the, in the bookstore. And so, yeah, that's Kim Meyer. She played Pam, Pam, Pam. <laughs> that was her in Seinfeld. Uh, I thought she did a really strong job. I thought she did a really good job, you know, kind of balancing the, the kind of over the top acting at points for Mark Patton. And I thought Kim did a really good job of kind of grounding that. And I thought she did a good job of the emotional moments in this movie where she was, you know, kind of getting drawn into Jesse's drama and into, into Jesse's trauma as well. Yeah. Um, I thought she did a good counterbalance to that where she wasn't over the top. She did a good job of kind of grounding things in this movie. And, you know, what's kind of she she was very much his opposite, like for all his like neuroses and quirks, she was calm and focused. And their relationship, I think, was much more complex and nuanced than a typical high school drama is. She wasn't just crushing on him like she wanted him to be better. You know, she she wanted him to feel better because he was clearly in distress. And so that was like that was pretty unique. And that could have gone horribly wrong. And there's a lot of performances in this this is a classic 80s slasher you know the performances are performances if you will so it could have gone horribly wrong many times and uh yeah i think i think i i did enjoy her 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 character yeah let's talk about favorite character because there are quite a few characters in this movie so patrick who is your favorite character in never on street part two i i just i had to go with coach Schneider, who is a very, very well-known character actor who goes by the name of Marshall Bell. Um, coach Schneider, you know, he's, he's every stiff upper lip gym coach in a, in a high school, in an eighties high school movie. And he plays it perfectly. He pitched perfectly. And he's a bull, he's a bully to the, to the boys. Um, just something about that is very nostalgic for me because I've watched so many uh, coming of age dramas and comedies from the 1980s and Marshall Bell, very much a big part of the 80s for me. So I, I, I had to pick him he, because literally he is his favorite character and he's literally one of those incredible character actors. Yeah, he, he's a he's an interesting part to this film. Of course, he also <laughs> has one of the more interesting deaths in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise when he gets whipped to death by towels or whatever it is. Sometimes uh, you need a little man butt. Come on. Equal opportunity. Let's get some man button there. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a good way to describe it. Uh, yeah, he, <laughs> he he also, you know, he he also, of course, Marshall Bell was also a Total Recall. Uh, he was an Airheads. He's a he's a great character actor. And yeah, Coach Schneider was an interesting one, and he was definitely the typical alpha male gym teacher, which you know we probably all experienced at one point or another. And do they even still have gym in school? Probably. Yeah. When, when, we're, I've been in high school, when we were yeah. in school, we had gym class and our gym teachers were pretty much always like coach Schneider. So I think that's a pretty accurate portrayal of who coach Schneider was. Um, yeah. I'm actually going to go, you know, my, my gut, I wanted to go with, with Mr. Walsh only because the great cool uh, clue Gulliger played him, which if you don't know that name, clue Gulliger uh, was a, a great character actor in the eighties. And he was also a part of one of our shared favorite horror films of all time which is uh, partially responsible for the name of this podcast, Return of the Living Dead. He played Bert uh, in Return of the Living Dead, and he is fantastic in that movie. Uh, Clue Gulliger was also in 
recently in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So he's a great character actor. So I almost picked him just purely because it was fun to see him in a movie. But he was ultimately kind of a hapless, you know, I don't believe my kid dad, which is kind of a losing role in all these movies. So I'm kind of going for the twofer here. I actually am going to go with Lisa Weber as my favorite character. I thought she she was really, you know, because there there is a version of this movie where she is the final girl, you know, where she, as I mentioned, you know, like where I talked about like the change in the script they could have done to where Jesse yeah. doesn't make it. And she ends up being the final girl. And I thought she did a really good job. She was a compelling character. She was a sympathetic character, which I enjoyed uh, because there's a lot of like disbelief amongst these kids. And that was also in the first one, of course, you know, Nancy can't even convince her boyfriend that Freddie's real, which again, if you think about the ridiculousness of saying a dream demon is killing your friends, probably they wouldn't believe you either. Right. Uh, the fact that she is very sympathetic and very kind to Jesse um, really made me love her character because she's actually very gentle and very kind with him. And she, you know, she tries to help him. Like she really tries to help him what she's going through and I, and I, and I appreciated about this character in a, in a, in a eighties genre of horror films where it's all about disbelief. I appreciated that Lisa was kind of there for him. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you that. And, um, I will, I will throw in the honorable mention for clue gulager and, and hope Lang who actually played Mr. And Mrs. Walsh, Jesse's parents. They were the quintessential eighties parents like that are completely out of touch with their kid. But there were these moments in the movie where they were genuinely concerned about him because even from the get-go, like he's he's screaming, he's having night terrors in the in the house. They don't know what to do. Like they and I and I'm like I'm sort of sympathetic as a parent, but more so like from growing up and growing up with troubled siblings, when your parents are like, fuck, we don't know what to do. Like we're kinda we're kinda at a loss. Um, they had their moments in this movie, the the Walsh parents, where I was like, yeah, I can buy that. I can I can I can see what they're going through here. Like every now and then this movie is genuinely brilliant in that respect. Yeah, I would agree. All right. Let's talk about best line in this movie. And I'm gonna let you set yours up because it kind of plays into your favorite character. So set up your best line from Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. <laughs> OK, my best line again. It's, you know, my favorite character was Coach Snyder. Uh, this bully coach and, um, you know, the, the boys had this little wrestling pantsing in incident out on the baseball field. And, uh, you know, he he made them do push up uh, the push up position for hours and hours on it. Ridiculous stuff, crazy stuff. And the boys are talking shit about him in the locker room. And uh, you can bet your ass that Coach Snyder uh, was listening in on this. And he has something to say about it. There we go. You know, Snyder shouldn't have called you out on that last play. Yeah, well. Schneider's got a stick up his ass today. Schneider's always got a stick up his ass. <laughs> Hello, dirt balls. Hello, Hello dirt, dirt balls. balls. <laughs> I like <laughs> you know what I, you life. know what I liked about that scene. In all honesty, was when Jesse and Grady look at each other like shit. <laughs> like we know it's coming, <laughs> yeah. and then and then it flashes immediately them doing push-ups again, which is kind of funny. Yeah. No, I just hello, dirt balls. That's such an '80s thing to have like where the the bully coach or the bully principal or whoever it is the dean hello dirt balls like it's, it's like it's uh such a classic it's like uh bill paxton and weird science you know what yeah. i mean like the asshole asshole brother and weird science it's very much that totally totally yeah i just i the nostalgia was too strong i had to go for it yeah so my favorite line is actually from early in the movie and this is one of the moments which is probably one of the most famous scenes in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, when Freddy first kind of introduces himself to Jesse and he basically says, I'm going to, you know, I want you to kill for me. I want you to, I want to take over your body. And this is probably the most famous line, 
from this movie, but it's also the one that always sticks with me uh, because I always remembered it. Even when I even even though I didn't particularly love this film, uh, this particular line always sticks with me. And any Nightmare on Elm Street fan will know this line. So I had to pick this one from part two. Here we go. I need you, Jesse. We got special work to do here, you and me. You've got the body. I've got the brain. (laughs) You've got the body. I've got the brain. That is by far the most famous line from this film. I mean, I can't think of another, like I've known that line pretty much my whole life and I don't even know this film that well. It's just yeah. one of those lines. Yeah. You've got the body. I've got the brain. It's a, it's a really, it's a clever line and it's a good scene too, by the way. That's actually yeah, a really good it's, scene. That's when he's scary. Freddie's like really scary in that yeah. moment. Now, did you know, and I'm sure you do cause you did some research on here. The crazy part about this is, is Robert England wasn't in this movie originally. They originally mm-hmm. cast it because they didn't want to pay Robert England his bigger salary. So they actually casted like a stunt man to just step in and play Freddy. And then after filming for a couple of weeks, they're like, this is dog shit. Get Robert <laughs> England back. And so they paid him what he wanted. He came back and did it. But there actually is a couple of little small scenes in this movie where it actually is the stunt man stepping in there, not in a speaking role, of course, but like in action right. scenes, there are a couple of little glimpses of a character of a guy playing Freddy Krueger who is not Robert England because they actually tried to go into this movie without Robert England and then they filmed it like, yeah, this didn't work and this is not going to happen. And so they hired him back and he brought him back in. You cannot replace Robert England. You can't. And, and I'm not even the biggest Freddy guy. And I'm telling you right now, there's no reason to have a Freddy film without Robert England. Yeah. It's just, just You have to have him. So they learned their lesson hard and fast and they only had to take one, like a couple of weeks of shooting a movie to realize that. Jackie Earl Haley learned that the hard, hard way back in like 2010 <laughs> when they made him the new Freddy, and he realized really quickly that he's not Robert England. Uh, I mean, what an honor to be like, hey, you should you should take over the mantle. Like, of course, and Jackie Earl Haley's a great fucking actor. Like, a cool. It's not going to work. It just yeah. can't work. It has to be Robert England or nothing. It's That's what this is all about. Yeah. It's so, yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible. Uh, let's talk about best scare because there actually were some genuinely solid scares in this movie. I actually kind of, again, kind of forgot that there were actually some solid scares in this movie. So, so Patrick, what is your best scare in Nightmare on Elm Street part two? My best scare is kind of more creepy than anything else. It's, it sets atmosphere. Again, it was something where if they would have maybe leaned into this more, this movie might have been stronger. And there's a there's a moment where we're kind of building, we're walking towards um, it's it's Jesse's little sister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're like walking towards her bed, and it's like you're in the point of view of you know what you assume is Freddie, and he's he's getting closer to her bed, and he's getting over her, and you're like, ooh, this is this is creepy. Again, like stakes are high right now. We don't want the little sister to be killed by Freddie. That's scary. Then you hear the voice, wake up, little girl. And then the camera turns and it's Jesse standing there. And that's freaky. It's just like something about that really hit. And I was like, ooh, now this is one of those, again, one of those moments of brilliance that every now and then pops up in this movie. Something like that lean into that and you'd have a much stronger movie because I'm like, oh my God, how awful would it be if Jesse kills his sister? That's awful. Um, so, so, so that scene to me was highly, highly effective and, and, and creepy. 
Yeah, that's where they that's where they really again where they where they move towards the trans the transition, the transformation of Jesse into Freddie where it was working. You know what yeah. I mean? More totally. of that is what I would say. More of more that. Of that yes. More of that, please. Um, oh my god, you could have literally just made this like a contained horror that just took place in a house with like Jesse, his little sister, his parents, and like maybe one other kid, or you know, his his girlfriend. Yeah, like it would have been great just that way. Yeah. So my best scare is actually a little bit later in the film when they do the full on transformation into Freddy, and the body horror really comes out when he's sleeping over at Grady's house, and they kind of a little bit redo the scene from the first film with with uh, you know with with um, um, why am I forgetting her name all of a sudden? Uh, the girl who gets tossed around the room. Oh, um, I want to say Erica, but I'm that's, that's not, not right. I, I, anyways, that like a little bit of that scene where like you know, yeah. they're they're trapped in the room together. Once again, this is the overtly kind of <laughs> the, the gay moment of the boy sleeping over with his boy, his friend. Um, but uh, that scene where the transformation happens, where it's almost like American Werewolf in London, where he starts transforming into Freddy, and Freddy is literally coming through his body and yeah. breaking out of his bones and breaking out of his skin. And there's Grady terrified by what's happening to his friend. He's seeing this transformation. He can't get out of the door. And his dad's banging on the door. And the dad in the movie, by the way, is played by the same dad who goes on to play the dad in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, by the That's way. Right. Um, it's a really effective scene. It really does up the intensity. And it's almost, again, where you remember the transformation of what, of American Werewolf in London, which everyone remembers that transformation of him turning into a werewolf. You know, he's doing that in his own. He's doing it by himself in that moment. And you see this just horrific transformation where he turns into the werewolf. In this scene, it's happening in front of his friend. His friend's trying to get out the door because he sees his friend tur turning into something. He doesn't know yeah. what, but it's a really good visceral scene where you kind of feel the fear in that moment where you're like, oh shit, get out of there. And he can't get out of there. And it's a really slow build of, of, of Freddie literally popping out through this guy's body. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of those freakier scenes. It's got that classic 80s kind of makeup effect, like almost reminiscent of like The Thing or Aliens or something. And that effect, it's a super creepy, creepy moment. And, and you know, with his friend clawing at the walls, like trying to get out of there and his dad trying to open the door. It's a good, good freaky scene. Yeah, very good scene. Uh, let's talk about best gore. Uh, there is a decent amount of gore in this movie. It doesn't go too crazy. Uh, so what is the best gore in, in this movie? Uh, there is just this one scene where um, I think it's it's uh, Jesse's leg is injured, right? And um, he re he looks at the wound, and the wound is like covered in ants. It's actually it's Lisa. Just, it's actually Lisa. It's Lisa's leg because she gets bitten by Freddy, and then they and, That's right. and, yeah, okay, and yeah. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't remember that point. I was getting rather bored. <laughs> this is late. <laughs> in the movie. Now, now you're making me question myself. I'm like, am I right? Because it happens in the boiler room towards the end of the movie, so it is Lisa. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure it's yeah, yeah I, I think you're right. But uh, either way, that's that scene of like bugs crawling around a wound, like bug stuff and body horror get me like that. Like co combo those two things together, and you oh you get me every time. It's something that makes my skin crawl. Yeah, it is. It is that because I remember I was going to bring up one of the weirder moments in this movie, which is when Freddie bites Lisa when she's running away. And I'm like, when did they turn Freddie into a cannibal? Like he literally <laughs> yes. bites her leg. It's, it looks like the scene from American Psycho where Patrick Bateman bites the yeah. prostitute's leg. I'm like, what the what is he doing? He's biting her leg. And that leads to the ant scene. So, yes, it is Lisa. Now I do remember there, that Damon. Holy shit. What? You just you just uh, just struck a lightning in my head. Let's do a fan film 
where Freddy tries to invade Patrick Bateman's dreams. Oh, <laughs> I like oh it. my God. I want that so bad. Uh, like, we a, should fucking do that. Yeah, like, I, 10 minutes short, and he's fucking Patrick Bateman. Just call and, so, it, and, and you call it American Nightmare. American Nightmare, and like... Freddie is t- terrified of what he sees in Patrick Bateman's dreams. Like, <laughs> I fucking want that. He's so like, bad. I gotta get the fuck out of here. Yeah, we can get Robert England. We can yeah, do this. This is great. <laughs> I like it. American Nightmare. I I like it. I like oh, that. Oh, I, like I want that so bad. Uh, my best gore is there's a scene later in the movie uh, where it's it's actually during towards the end of the movie where Freddie's face kind of melts off, and it's a, yeah. it's a good bit of gore. Um, you know, I would have gone for the, you got the body. I got the brains where he literally pulls off his skull and you see the brain, which is also really well done. But I do like the moment towards the end where his face almost looks like it's a wax sculpture and it just starts melting away. And it's a really cool scene because it's not quite bloody, but it's also, again, it kind of, it's almost like it reminds me of the, um, the, the toxic waste scene in RoboCop where the guy gets turned into like a toxic waste creature and then it kind of gets exploded and it's just like weird flesh and goo and grossness yeah. and it's not just blood that scene where freddy's face starts to melt away is kind of a cool scene so i did like that and i thought that was a good bit of gore yeah i'm definitely down with that scene there's a, there's there's a couple of great like moments like a great great gore moment the, the one where he emerges from jesse's body pretty, yeah pretty damn cool i like that I, again that was ended up I'll, I'll be honest I, that ended up being probably my favorite part of the film was just like damn i kind of forgot that was actually kind of cool uh, yes, if they would have ju- just gone more to that and that been the transformation and, you know, be done with it. Great. But they, again, that's, you know, yeah, where they didn't, where they didn't hit the mark. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about goofiest moment, because I think <laughs> one of the biggest problems with this film is the goofy stuff. And yeah. I cheated. I came up with two. Uh, but I'll, I'll let you go with one and I'm going to give my two because I could not narrow it down to one. Oh, Damon, my list was long. Well, while I'm taking notes, I go, you know, is that the goofiest moment? Is that the goofiest moment? I wrote a lot of them down, so it's totally fine that you had two. But I ultimately went with unpacking his room, right? So when we meet them, they're moving into the house, and he still hasn't unpacked most of his stuff. And at some point, his dad's had enough. Unpack your damn room, you know, like finally do it. And then it just becomes this really corny, really goofy 80s montage of him straightening up his room unpacking all his stuff and then mark Patton puts a couple of mark Patton moves in there like his the little butt scoot to close the door or close the close the drawer and and then the the exploding popper uh very very uh strategically placed let's put it that way if you've seen the movie you know what i'm talking about um i thought on the whole like it was a really wacky moment that was not actually out of place in a lot of 80s movies it just had that mark Patton sprinkle on top of it yeah now according to mark Patton, that was actually in the script him but right. him butting the drawer right Th- so he says uh yeah that was by far the goofiest dumbest <laughs> weirdest like just weird scene um <laughs> it's weird <laughs> i would agree so my two uh that's that listen let's be honest this the the room the the putting the moving the room right that is number one i'm not gonna Damn lie it, there's the, plenty of but that is <laughs> that is beyond so. goofy but my two scenes in particular one is the scene that actually convinced Wes craven not to do this movie which was the possessed parakeets one of the <laughs> dumbest weirdest gags ever in nightmare on street history is possessed parakeets flying around the room. it is so unbelievably stupid and so out of place that makes no sense whatsoever i know they're trying to pay homage to the birds i guess but it is so stupid that's number one for me 
<laughs> number two in the goofiest scene, and this is real. This is the one that, like, to me, ruins the film. This is the one that just ruins. I mean, it literally takes me out of every good thing I had to say about this movie was ruined in this one scene. And it's the pool party. The pool party <laughs> is so stupid. Where yeah. Freddie jumps out of a door. And the kids are running away and they're trapped in the pool and the pool's boiling and Freddie looks five, seven and the kids are six foot two. And that all, I would my favorite line in the, my actual favorite line is movie. Let me go back. I got the, you got the body. I got the brains. That's, that's the best line. But my actual favorite line, the one I always remembered as a kid that always made me laugh because it was so stupid was when the kid walks up, he's like, Hey, we just want to, we, we don't want to hurt you. We want to help you. And Freddie goes, help yourself, fucker. And he stabs him. That's <laughs> like, but it's so, it is, it is beyond stupid. Like it is the worst scene. Ever, one of the worst scenes ever that makes no sense. And it is just unbelievably dumb. You know, what's funny is like, cause I, I, I was recalling a little bit of like my memory from being a kid and watching horror films at my cousin's house. So the two bits of imagery that were very, very familiar in this movie for me was, oh, I totally remember the bus from hell when I was a kid, and I totally remember the pool scene. Why I remember the pool scene? Because it's wacky. It's so wacky and dumb and silly, and it's just like it's 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 like just a it's like that that portion of the music video November Rain where like the rain hits at the wedding and like all hell breaks loose and you don't fucking know why. Yeah, like that's that's kind of what happens in this in in this portion of the movie, and you and you don't even feel like like Freddy's that dangerous to this group no. of kids. Like it's, not even just that he's smaller than them. There's just something about like they could just kind of run away. It's like, just he, like he's, he's in the real world. Like we're, he's not gonna he he's only gonna catch who he's gonna catch. It's all it's the least scary moment of Freddy ever. Yes, like he looks. I, think, I agree. There's no menacing. There's he's out of the shot. He's literally hanging around tiki torches for Christ's sake, and like <laughs> yeah, jumping around. Like, if they, I, like the only thing that could have made it worse if he jumped in and like you know dove in after the kids in the pool. Like that could have been the only <laughs> way it would have been dumber. But yeah, like him chasing the kids around the pool area and then the one kid being like, we just want to help you. He's like, help yourself, fucker. That <laughs> fucker. It's just so, it's so and, stupid. And I will say about the bird scene that you brought up, the parakeet scene is, in my opinion, maybe even more ridiculous because it it is people in a, in a house being scared by tiny little parakeets. <laughs> uh, but I do remember my uncle, I, I, I grew up next door to my uncle. He had two cockatiels. And those fuckers would get loose <laughs> and they flap around all over. And you're like, Jesus Christ, like, it's like a bird, you know, and they're screeching and they kind of bite you a little bit. And I was like, whoever wrote or, or if David Chaskin truly wrote that scene and like it was very intentionally written, it's because he had a neighbor with parakeets or, or cockatiels that they can be rather annoying. But that scene is ridiculous. I mean, a broom, and you're you solved the problem. I mean, I'm just and then saying. The birds explode, by the way. Yeah, then they so also explode hilarious. like they got like they got they got freaking uh, fireworks tied to them. Yeah, it's so weird, and like that's <laughs> all. That's that's definitely one of the dumbest in the pool scene. It's just like the pool scene ruins the movie. I mean, again, <laughs> it does even the weird coach S and M bar taking him back and getting you know towel whipped to death right. weirdness like that's that's weird enough. But the pool scene's what ruins the movie. Like, it's so dumb. It's so dumb. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's fucking, it's a ridiculous moment that should be terrifying and is like not even remotely terrifying. Not at all. even close. Uh, let's talk about one of the probably the most important category of all because this is the direct sequel to the original Nightmare on Elm Street, and that is is this a worthy follow up? And I think it's a really interesting question. This was one you came up with, Patrick, and, and I want you to explain this and kind of give your answer to this because it is it is interesting because um, when I think of and we're going to do a wrap up show, you know, at the end of this, we'll talk about the entire franchise, much like we did with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I would argue that the best sequel ever to a first film to a second film in a franchise. I love Scream 2. I think they did a great job with that. I, I really, again, we've done it. I really like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Uh, I still enjoy Halloween 2 for all its issues, all those kind of things. I personally, and here's your credit, I personally think Friday the 13th Part 2 is the best sequel to a direct film i think it's one of the strongest friday the 13th films of all time it is. um nightmare on elm street 2 a little different so is it a worthy follow-up as the freddy neophyte as the guy who's really coming at this from the outside it's an emphatic yes for me Th this movie has a lot of problems and that's okay because uh i i will not be throwing stones from my jason shack in the woods because this, there's certainly problems with that franchise as well. I'm also a Texas guy, and Texas, the Texas franchise is laughable at best for the most part. So I'm certainly not standing on any sort of high horse. Um, I just, I think to my, to, to to my untrained, you know, I'm new to the Freddy world. I like that they went in a different direction, and I think the lore of the first movie is strong in this movie, and it, and to me, it sets up what will be all the rest of the movies, like why we need to be afraid of Freddy. Now they lose sight of it at some point in this movie, but I, I guess what I'm, long story short, I think at the bones of this movie are the right direction to move in to keep something interesting and different and fresh, which I think Freddy does better than any of the other franchises. I, I'm going to, I'm going to slightly disagree on, is it a worthy follow-up for only one reason? And it's because of the second half of this movie. If you just start yeah. with the first half, the premise, as I said, the, the possession body horror part of it is really cool and a really nice twist. And, and Freddie trying to cross over into the corporal world where he's trying to become, you know, a human again, basically no longer just being in your dreams to kill you in reality. All that is good. That is 100% a worthy follow-up and a really cool uh, twist on the mythology. You know what I mean? It's a different way to attack the mythology from the first film. The first film, he's just trying to get his vengeance on the kids of Elm Street for the parents who killed him. The second film, he's actually trying to cross over into the world to kill everybody. I like that. It's just the way they fumble it so badly in the second half of the film is why I say it's not a worthy follow-up because they ruin all the goodwill they build up in the first 45 minutes, they ruin in the last 45 minutes with the pool scene, with the goofy... Yeah. You know, with the goofy like half transformation into Freddy and then the weird non-death scene. And again, first half, if I just looked at the first half, great. It's a really worthy follow-up. It's a really cool follow-up. Second half of the movie destroys that grace, destroys the good grace they built up from the first half. So when I say it's not, it's because of that. It's because I can't, I have to judge the film as a whole. And as a whole, it's not a worthy successor because they ruin everything they built up in the first half by just such a weird, dumb, not well put together ending. Like they just, it's like the movie just loses all momentum. It does. And it, so it in that regard, yeah. in that regard, so is it a worthy sequel in premise? Absolutely. The premise of this film 
is great. And I actually appreciated it a lot more rewatching it last night. Like I was like, Oh damn, like this is actually a lot better than I remember it being. Then it got to the pool scene and I'm like, Oh, now I remember why I don't like <laughs> <Yeah>. this movie. <laughs> But you know what? Like, honestly, if, if we put it all in context, the sensibility of the 80s moviegoer, if I was like a teen or a young adult in the 80s who was obsessed with movies and I went from Friday, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street to Freddy's Revenge, I'd be like, oh, this is cool because the quality of horror movies was what it was. You know, they, they weren't perfect, even for uh, Friday two, good movie, but, you know, not perfect. And you could put you could poke holes in that, too. But as a sequel goes, it it was it was probably at a higher like it was actually delivering at a higher level back then. If you put it contextually with the other horror movies that were coming out, it was actually more advanced. Uh, it had a it had a it was more sophisticated, I should say, than a lot of the other 80s movies sequels that we were getting. I mean, this is like by comparison to other 80s sequels, this is pretty far up on the list, to be exactly. honest. Like there's a lot of really bad ones, like a really there's a lot of really, really bad stupid sequels to 80s horror films so i i agree with you there 100 percent um but like i said it's it, it, you know judging it as a whole it just it 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 actually i'll say it makes me angry that's a weird way to say it but like it it, it disappoints me because this film yeah. had a lot of potential you know what i mean it, it just it just took a lot of weird directions lost momentum and the story falls apart in the second half of the film um but if i just want if i again the premise is great and if they would have just stuck with that premise and had that slow build transformation of Freddie taking over Jesse. And then at the end, Jesse dies because the choice is he's taken me over. I can't fight him off any longer. You need to kill me. I would have been like, this is one of my favorite nightmare on Elm street film. Honestly, like I think if they just would have, and again, I know I'm talking, you know, 30 years after the fact or whatever, but I'm saying like, I think if they would have made that change, I would have been like, damn, that was a cool choice to make. And they just, they didn't take, they didn't, they didn't go far enough, which sounds weird considering all the bizarre choices they make in this movie. <laughs> uh, they didn't go far enough, but they didn't go far enough in the storytelling. They didn't. And this is actually maybe we'll see as we go down the line with these movies, this might be my overarching problem with Freddie is that they don't lean into the scary enough. And, and there there's potential for lots of scare in, in just in the premise that Freddie continually delivers. And I think, and we're going to get to Dream Warrior soon, even in, in movies, in some of the best Freddy movies, the scare is not there. And and this movie, again, does the same thing. It's like, starts out pretty scary, starts out pretty tense. I think there's a lot at stake here. And then it just it starts to peter out. And we'll see as we go down the line if that's a, if that, if that's a pattern in these movies or not. Well, I think we'll be I think we'll be a little bit more satisfied by Dream Warriors. I, I have a good feeling that we're gonna have a much stronger reaction to that film. At least I know I will. Uh, I look forward to reviewing that one next because that is gonna be our next Nightmare on Elm Street film as we continue on our franchise review of Nightmare on Elm Street. So the last question, of course, Patrick, the most important question of all, is it scary? So when you look back at Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, Freddy's Revenge, is it scary? Well, I think we said it enough here that I think the first half of the film has lots of potential. Uh, and it sets up dread pretty well, but it quickly starts to fade and then it starts to get wacky. It gets off track, et cetera, et cetera. So um, ultimately, no, this is not one of the scary Freddy movies. I would still put the first one ahead of this as term in terms of scary movies. Yeah, I would agree. First half of the movie is scary. There's some creepy moments. There's some solid moments in there, but then it just loses steam and doesn't, it's not scary at the end. It's just weird at the end. Yeah. Um, the bus scene is great at the beginning. I think that's a really strong scene. The, 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 the initial introduction, of freddie with the 
I got the body, you got the you got the body, I got the brains. That's a good scene. There's some other good scares there. The scene you mentioned with the little with his sister. Some strong moments. They just the, the other moments kind of outweigh it, unfortunately. Yeah, and, um, and kudos to that bus driver, whoever the stunt driver was, t- who's taking a full size fucking school bus off roading. Not an easy task. I'm gonna yeah. give them props for that. Well, they moment. actually so wild. they actually the the first scene in the movie, the very first scene in the movie, the guy and again, obviously they had a stunt driver at some point, but that actually right. was Robert England in yeah, the in the, yeah, in the you bus. See him very yeah. clearly. Yeah, so kind of a cool kind of a cool twist there. That you actually see Robert England kind of out of his makeup, even though you don't really see his face. Um, yeah. in that moment. So yeah, Quinn, they, they booked it. They, we didn't talk about the ending. They book into very much like the original nightmare where they get back on the bus and the ending is them driving off into the hellscape again. So you realize the Freddy's not dead. They literally kind of copied the first film, which I, appre- I appreciate that yeah. they tried to do it again. Um, I, I do like better when you get into part four and part, it's part three and part four, where they give a more definitive ending to Freddy. Um, yeah. which again, we'll talk about more when we talk about the next film. coming up very soon. Oh, I'm so excited, dude. I'm docking is just I cannot wait to pump up the docking, dude. I'm so ready to Dream Warriors is a damn good song. Really good. I actually have the vinyl record of it, so I'm very, very, very excited. <laughs> we're gonna get into that. Very soon. excited for docking. All right, folks, we're gonna get out of here. Of course, a big thank you to everyone that tunes in to Rewind of the Living Dead each and every week. Uh, as we continue on our Nightmare on Elm Street series, uh, make sure you check us out on all your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, and of course, over on my website, nerdcoremovement.com. If you have questions, comments, movies you want us to review down the line, feel free to hit us up on Twitter anytime. You can find me at Damon Martin, and you are? At Director Patrick. And you can also send us an email with questions, comments about the show or movies you want us to review. You can find us at rotlivingdead at gmail.com. That's rot living dead at gmail.com. And we will see you guys next week uh, for another edition of rewind of the living dead. And we will be back soon with our next episode where we get into dream warriors from nightmare on Elm street. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then. Peace.